Well, welcome back. Are you still awake? Still surviving? Did you get some sugar? You can at least have a sugar high for 10 minutes or so. Tom's got the hardest job in the next uh, hour here to keep you awake after lunch. Uh, so pray for our brother and uh, don't fall asleep in prayer, all right? <laughs> so good to have um, another opportunity to submit to the word. My heart has been encouraged and strengthened in faith through our time together. I hope yours has been as well. And we look forward to kind of uh, putting the exclamation point on the whole thing with one last time together. On your way in, you, you got either one book or two books. If you only got one book, it's because you're from Newton Bible Church, and the rest of the call to prayer by J.C. Rowell didn't come in yet. We had the hardest time in the world finding copies of these things, because they're just out of print everywhere. Um, so we have those coming, hopefully within the next couple weeks, and we'll get those in your boxes, those of you who attend Newton Bible Church. The other one you all got is a book by Michael Reeves called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. That is a a catchy title uh, should make you want to read it. So let me just read one section out of it to help you want to read it, all right? Reeves says, prayer then is enjoying the care of a powerful father. Instead of being left to a frightening loneliness where everything is all down to you, prayer is the antithesis of self-dependence. It is our no to independence and our no to personal ambition. It is the exercise of faith that you need God and are a very needy receiver. With this in mind, instead of chasing the idol of our own productivity, let's be dependent children and let the busyness that could keep us from prayer drive us to prayer. Only then, like the sun, can we actually be fruitful. That's just a small sampling of a book that is loaded with encouragement for your prayer life. And then this book J.C. Ryle wrote uh, is um, a kick in your pants that you need to read and be encouraged with. He says this, there is no royal road either to healing or learning. Princes and kings, poor men and peasants, all alike must attend to the wants of their own bodies and their own minds. No man can eat, drink, or sleep by proxy. No man can get the alphabet learned for him by another. All these are things which everybody must do for himself or they will not be done at all. Just as it is with the mind and body, so it is with the soul. There are certain things absolutely needful to the soul's health and well-being. Each must attend to these things for himself. Each must repent for himself. Each must apply to Christ for himself. And for himself, each must speak to God and pray. It's a tremendous encouragement. I hope you'll pick uh, those up and take them with you and be encouraged by them. There's also a table in the back uh, that is, um, has some resources on it that Tom and Brandon brought with them about a Faithful Stewards Conference that they're having in June, uh, just down in uh, Dallas area. So it's about a five and a half hour drive from here, an easy one to get to. I'm hoping to go. So if you're interested in going, let me know and we can take a, a car load down to that conference. There are also some free books there that Tom has written. Uh, Countryside was, was gracious to donate that to the conference so we can give those to you. And so those are their fair game for free for the taking, first come, first serve. I actually don't even know if there's any back there anymore, but there was last time I walked past. Um, and then I forgot at the end of the first session to reference you and point you to a table that was set up at lunch um, by Kyle and Tony Carlson and their ministry uh, with a conference they're running, Leadership and Laity, and I'm going to have him come and tell us about that so I don't butcher any of the facts. So come and tell us, please, would you, brother? Well, it has been a blessing uh, to be here with you all and fellowship and the, the teaching. Uh, it's just a blessed day. Uh, but I am Pastor Kyle with Mount Zion Church in Art, Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, we're almost to the Oklahoma border. So 
yes, I'm basically an Oki, so don't hold that against me. Uh, we do have a conference of our own. Uh, we, this will be our third one this year. Uh, previous speakers have been Vody Bauckham, uh, Jim Oreck. Uh, this year we're going to move to a multi-speaker format for the first time. We have Jim Oreck coming back. Uh, he was formerly a professor over in Southern Seminary in Louisville. Um, he's... Uh, an author as well. We're actually doing a drawing for those who register for our conference this weekend, uh, not just for you guys, but anyone. And uh, the drawing has mere Calvinism uh, that he wrote, which is wonderfully written. And then seven thoughts every Christian ought to think every day. And this is actually, he walks people through uh, the Lord's Prayer. And I thought how fitting that was for this conference. Um, and then we have Michael Staten. Uh, he has received his doctorate of ministry degree from Master Seminary. And then uh, Bill Askell, which maybe uh, that Askell, that last name you'll be familiar with, with Founders Ministries and his brother Tom. So uh, it's going to be an encouraging time. Uh, we have come together just with a few different churches. Uh, but it's always encouraging to go, we're not alone. You know, on Sunday mornings, you think, well, maybe it's just us that we cherish these, these deep doctrines of the faith uh, that exalts our Lord. Uh, but when we come together as conferences like these, it's like there is a bigger kingdom. It's not just us. And so anyway, um, I just, again, I'm so blessed to be here. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Tom, thank you for the word this morning. Looking forward to this afternoon. And so anyway, uh, you can find us on Eventbrite. Uh, if you bought tickets for this conference, I... Uh, sure, you'll be able to find Eventbrite for ours. So, uh, again, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Kyle. That conference is in April, um, so be looking at those details. You can go to uh, their church website as well, Mount Zion Community in Ark City, and find those details uh, of that conference uh, about an hour away. It'd be worth uh, the travel down there to hear some great truth from the Word. Well, a conference like this, you know, does not happen on its own, and several of you have thanked me for all my work. Uh, the portion of the work that I did was about that big. Um, there are so many people behind the scenes, as you know, who have worked so hard to make today work, and I am so thankful for each of them. Um, so I want to mention a few of those publicly, uh, starting with our CE committee, who uh, kind of spearhead the efforts to figure out what we're doing, uh, figure out how we're going to order the day and who's going to do what. Uh, and then our hospitality committee, who worked so hard to feed you and give you stuff to drink and eat through the day. Um, it, it was a monumental effort for them. They started working well earlier into this week and getting stuff ready for you. So we just rejoice in them. And then our AV team, uh, always adjusting to things I bring to them at the last minute, which is like every time we've got something like this, I'm always saying, hey, can we do this? And they're like, uh, sure, yeah, okay. <laughs> and they figure it out. So they're amazing. And praise God for them. And then our musicians, thank you, uh, worship team, for helping us honor the Lord together and giving your time to do that as well. Um, I'm sure there's others I forgot, but all of you have been so uh, incredibly um, gracious to help us with the conference. So thank you for your work in that way. Look forward to worshiping together in submitting to the word and uh, hearing from our Lord again. Before we do that, we'll sing a few songs. But let me pray and ask God to help us as we enter into this last session. Lord in heaven, you are worthy of all of our praise. All glory, honor, and power is due unto your name, not just today, but unto the eternal day. We ask that that would be true in this last session, that your glory and honor and majesty would be seen through the exposition of the text, through the singing 
of great songs of the faith that all things would be done to the praise and the honor and the glory of your name alone. We ask, Father, that you would fulfill the promise of your son and build his church, that the, the bride of Christ would be purified and washed with the, the word of Christ, and that we would grow in uh, knowing you and loving you and enjoying uh, being your children and expressing our sonship through prayer. We pray for our brother Tom as he exegetes the word to us and lays it before us. We pray that you would, would strengthen him in the power of your might. We pray, Father, that you would fill him with your spirit, that he would not rely upon himself in any way, but completely upon you to use him uh, for our spiritual good and for your eternal glory. Lord, we pray these things believing that you can and you will in accordance with your will answer them. And so we trust that you will do that in the minutes to come. Thank you for loving us in and through your son. In his name we pray, amen. When we pray, we pray to a thrice holy God. Let's stand as we sing of that. Holy, holy, 
Well, I want to say thank you again to Matt, to the elders, and to all of you for your kind hospitality to me in, uh, in this conference and the time to spend with you. It's been a joy, and I hope uh, you've been encouraged as I have been, both from the teaching and from the fellowship together. In this session, I've chosen, as Matt and I talked about it and worked through it together, I've chosen a topic that is a really important one for two reasons. It's a topic and a passage that have been, on the one hand, abused, and on the other hand, neglected. I think it's been abused by many in the charismatic movement. It's been misused to uh, sort of champion some sort of inherent power to faith, some sort of um, name it and claim it sort of theology. But on the other end, I think for those of us who are evangelical, who believe in the scriptures, I think we have ignored and neglected what the scriptures do clearly teach about the role and importance of faith in prayer. There are pitfalls on both sides, and we want in our time together this afternoon to sort of walk that line between the pitfalls and and learn the biblical place of faith in prayer. Now let me begin by asking you two questions, and These are rhetorical questions, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you to genuinely answer in your own heart. The first question is this, do you regularly pray and ask God to intervene in your world? Do you? The second question is, do you believe that God can or will answer that prayer when you ask him to act? In the passage that we come to in this session, to close out our conference, Jesus takes up this issue of believing prayer. Let's read it together, Mark chapter 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, the key to this passage, and really the point of it is this, Jesus teaches us here to cultivate complete confidence in God's power to answer our prayers. Complete confidence in God's power to answer our prayers. Now, let me just give you a roadmap where we're going in this session so you don't have to wonder. Here's the outline we'll be following. We'll begin with the occasion that, that prompts this uh, teaching on our Lord's part, verses 19 to 21. Then we'll look at his specific exhortation in verse 22, his application of that exhortation in verses 23 and 24, 
And then in verses 25 and 26, we'll meet some limitations on this, uh, what Spurgeon called the, the golden key of prayer. So let's look at it together. We begin then with the occasion. The occasion. With Mark chapter 11, we enter into the second half of Mark's gospel. It centers in the events of the Passion Week. Mark spends 10 chapters on three and a half years of our Lord's ministry. And then he spends the last six chapters, chapters 11 through 16, on one week in our Lord's life. Clearly, that week defines the heart of Jesus' ministry, defines why he came, and it's at the heart of our faith. Now, that's the larger setting. The specific time setting is this. On Friday, one week before his crucifixion, Jesus arrived at Bethany from the town of Jericho. He'd been traveling down the Jordan Rift Valley with pilgrims who were coming for the Feast of Passover. And he arrives in Bethany, just over the hill from Jerusalem, on that Friday. Since Shabbat, Sabbath, began at sundown on Friday, it's likely that he and the twelve arrived before dark Friday evening. I, I have three daughters. My youngest daughter is uh, finishing up at Master's University, and this semester she's in, in, at their Israel campus. So it's called Ibex. They get to study a semester there in Israel, and, and it's, it's exciting to hear her describe what happens when, when Shabbat begins at sundown on Friday and when it ends at sundown on Saturday, and it hasn't changed really much from this day. So... They arrived before dark on Friday evening when Shabbat began. On Saturday, they rested and probably went to synagogue since it was the Sabbath. And then when the Sabbath ended at sunset, that's probably when the, the feast in Jesus' honor at the home of Simon the leper took place, the, the time when Mary anointed Jesus for burial, you remember. That probably happened that Saturday night after Shabbat was over. Now, that brings us then to Sunday of the Passion Week. And as you know, that was the triumphal entry. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, making the unequivocal claim to be Israel's Messiah. Also on that day, he heals in the temple. And he prophesied and weeped over the destruction of the city that was coming because of their rejection of their Messiah. He also cased the temple for what he would come back and do on Monday. We'll get to in a moment. He saw and looked around and examined all that was happening there, we're told. And so he is, he is taking a good look at what is going on on the Temple Mount. Sunday evening then, Jesus and the Twelve went back to Bethany for the night. That's Sunday. Now on Monday, only three events happened that are recorded for us in the Scripture. One of those is the cursing of a fig tree. We'll get to in a moment. The, the second is the second cleansing of the temple. He cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and here at the end on the Monday of the Passion Week, he cleansed it a second time. And then thirdly, you have the request of some Greeks that are, that's recorded in John 12. You remember they came seeking to see him and uh, when Jesus describes his coming death. Now Mark only records the first two of Monday's events, and both of those events, the cursing of the fig tree and the second cleansing of the temple, are actually object lessons. Both are acted out object lessons that essentially have the same message. 
as we'll see. Now look at verse 12. It says, on the next day, Monday morning, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. So this is Monday morning uh, as he has now leaving Bethany and going back into town. Now here is uh, a map that gives you a little bit of a feel for the city. This is Jerusalem looking from the southeast and looking to the northwest. So you see in the foreground Bethany, the, the little village of Bethany. That's where Jesus and his disciples were staying each night. And then Beth, the city of Bethpage there. And then you have the Mount of Olives circled in red. And they would have come over the Mount of Olives, topped the Mount of Olives, and gone down into the city of Jerusalem. The walk was about two miles from Bethany to the temple there in Jerusalem. Shortly after they left the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus there in Bethany, where Jesus and his disciples were staying, Jesus recognized that he was hungry. I love that. I love that our Lord was not only fully and completely God, but he was and is completely human. He's everything you are except for sin. He has a human body, a human soul, glorified, but he always will. He always will associate with us as his people. And in his earthly life, he did not have a glorified body, not a, no sin, obviously, but not glorified, and he was hungry, and he recognized and acknowledged that morning hunger. Verse 13, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now, Matthew, in his account, tells us that it was just one lone fig tree by the road. This wasn't a, a grove of fig trees or a farm. I know many of you are into farming. This wasn't that. This was, a, this was a, a rogue fig tree standing alone by the road. Here is um, what it might have looked like in Jesus' time. This is a, this is a fig tree near Jerusalem from to, in today's world. Now, just so you understand sort of the harvest part of this, ripe figs for the winter crop would come in another 30 to 60 days. But the green or unripe figs would begin to appear in February. They were called in Hebrew the pagim, rather. And here's a photo of them. They were both edible and they were often eaten. By early April, when this event unfolds near Passover, it would have been normal to find such green figs on a fig tree. And that, that expectation would be especially true in this case because it was in leaf. Usually, the, the baby green fig buds appeared before the leaves. And you can even see it in this picture how they sort of stand out because they are there and, and obvious and visible. So if there were leaves then, there should be some of these little green figs. Verse 13 says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. Now, by its leaves, this tree promised that it would at least have some of these baby green figs on it, but when he got there, it had nothing. Verse 14, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples were listening. Now, the fig tree, as I mentioned before, is an object lesson. It's an object lesson that represents the nation Israel. God had every reason to expect fruit from Israel. 
You remember the description even in the Old Testament of how like a vine, he had, he had cared for it and, and had every reason to expect that it would bear fruit. Well, the same point is in this fig tree. In her temple worship and in her rituals, Israel appeared to have the fruit of genuine worship and love for God, but Jesus found nothing but leaves. The religion of the people was all appearance and no reality. And that brings us to the second object lesson. When he gets to the temple, he acts out that reality. The fig tree is like an analogy of what Jesus then finds at the temple. A lot of outward show, a lot of leaves, but no fruit. Remember the the businesses in the court of the Gentiles were those which belonged to the leaders of the nation or they were franchised by the leaders of the nation and they were making healthy profits from what was sold there. And Jesus chases them out. And then Jesus says that they had completely perverted the divine purpose of the temple. They were, they were thieves and they'd made God's house a house for prayer, a cave in which thieves could hide. It's because they'd converted what was supposed to have been an area intended for the Gentiles, God's heart for the nations, where they could come and pray, they'd converted it into a place to make profit. And Jesus drove them out. So you have those two object lessons about Israel's worship. They're like a fig tree that promises something, but there's no real fruit. And Jesus actually gets to the temple and discovers the reality. The same is true there. Here, here are the leaves of and all the forms of worship but there's no real fruit taking place. Instead, they've converted it to something that's really just like a den of thieves. Now that brings us to the end of Monday, verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Uh, The tense of the Greek verb here makes it clear that this was Jesus' normal practice throughout this week. That is until Thursday night when, of course, he stays and celebrates the Passover, institutes the Lord's Supper, and is arrested later that evening. But until then, this is what they did. John puts it this way, John 12, 36, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Now Mark picks up the story of what happens the next morning. Verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. It's now Tuesday morning, early In fact, Luke 21, 38 says all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple and to listen to him. So Jesus went early into the city of Jerusalem. In addition, this would have been the busiest day of Jesus' Passion Week, at least according to what we have received in the inspired text. In Mark's gospel, the events of Tuesday, and Tuesday only on the Passion Week, Start in 11, verse 20, and run all the way to chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus and his disciples then on that Tuesday morning, early in the morning, are taking the same route back over those two miles from Bethany over the Mount of Olives back to the city of Jerusalem. And they pass the same fig tree that Jesus had seen the previous morning that had held out such promise. But on Tuesday morning, it had completely shriveled up. It had withered from the roots up. And all the disciples notice, and and all of them are talking about it. 
Matthew says in Matthew 21, 20, at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither at once? Matthew telescopes the incident, so at first glance it appears like it happened immediately, but Mark makes it very clear that it was the next morning when they had this conversation. The disciples are shocked by what happened to this fig tree. I mean, healthy, thriving adult trees don't completely dry up in 24 hours. And usually, if a tree is unhealthy, the signs begin where? At, at the extremities. But this one withered from the roots up. In 24 hours, it had gone from being a healthy tree covered with leaves to being completely dead and lifeless. Verse 21. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now, in this verse, we get just a little hint that Mark is writing his gospel under the auspices and direction of Peter because Mark tells us here what Peter was thinking at the time. Peter was remembering what had transpired the day before and now he calls it to, to Jesus' attention. And Peter's statement here is really an implied question. It's the same question the rest of the apostles were voicing. And that is, here it is in Matthew 21, 20, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did this fig tree wither? Uh, they weren't questioning Jesus' power to perform this miracle. They had seen him work much greater miracles than this. Their question was how. How was this accomplished? And you can understand their question if you remember what Jesus said to the tree in his curse. Verse 14, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Matthew's version says, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. So Jesus' curse of the tree was that it would never bear fruit again in the future. But his curse didn't predict the death of the tree. It could have survived and still fulfilled his curse. So apparently the, the disciples are surprised to see this fig tree that 24 hours earlier had been filled with green leaves, now completely dead, no signs of life. That's the occasion. That brings us, secondly, to Jesus' exhortation. In response to Peter's statement and the questions of the rest, verse 22 says this, Jesus answered saying to them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, if you're familiar with Mark's gospel, this should bring up another statement, another conversation. Go back to chapter 9. Chapter 9, and here you have Jesus interchanged with the man with the demon-possessed son. And in verse 22, he's explaining what's happened. And he says this, this demon has often thrown him both into the fire and the water to destroy him. But if you, Lord, can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now, sadly, these two passages in Mark's gospel have been abused by so many professing Christians for every imaginable excess. Faith healers love these verses because if someone doesn't play along with their little game, if they don't temporarily demonstrate some kind of physical relief, often under the power of suggestion, what do they say to them? Well, you know, I couldn't heal you because you didn't have enough faith. 
Unfortunately, both of these verses are often explained in a way that emphasizes the power of faith. Now listen very carefully. This is so important to understand. Faith has no power. Faith has no power. My faith can't do anything because faith isn't a force. Faith isn't a power. Faith is simply believing. Believing doesn't have any power to act. The focus of Jesus' statement in both cases is not that faith is powerful, instead that God is powerful and that there is absolutely no limit on God's power to act. That means that where there is true faith in God, he is able to do anything. So how does faith relate to that inherent ability or power of God? What exactly is faith? Well, when I took my own congregation through Mark's gospel, we discovered, and I'm, I'm not going to unpack it all for you through Mark's gospel, we discovered there are two primary expressions of faith. And I think you'll see these immediately. The first is confidence in God's clear biblical promises to me. Confidence in God's clear biblical promises that are addressed to me. You see, not all the promises in Scripture are addressed to us. Some are addressed to the nation Israel. Some are addressed to the apostles. But clearly, there are some promises of God that are addressed to all true believers. Faith is having confidence that God will do those things. Secondly, faith expresses itself in this way. Confidence that God has the capacity, the power to do whatever I ask of him if he decides that it's best for me. Now implied in that second statement is God's willingness to act, his proneness to act on behalf of his children. I'm his child. And Jesus told, told on a couple of occasions the, the sort of uh, analogy, look, if, you're, if your human father sees you have a need, a genuine need, what does he do? He's moved to meet that need. And he says, look, if you're sinful and you're prone to do that for your children, how much more do you think your heavenly father, the perfect father, is acknowledging the needs of his children and willing to meet them? So this second expression of faith is not based on any specific promise in the scripture to me, but rather that God has the capacity to do whatever I ask of him if, in his fatherly wisdom, he decides that it's best for me. Faith is not convincing yourself, just as an example, faith is not convincing yourself that God will heal your family member. That's not faith. Because God has not made that promise. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that at this point in time, God is going to heal this specific person. Instead, faith is saying, God, I am praying and asking you to heal this person that I love. And I believe and am convinced that you have the power to accomplish this if you decide that that's what is best. Faith is being convinced God can heal if he chooses to do so. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, the famous hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen or the evidence of things not seen. Faith is being convinced that God will act and that he can act. Verse 2, for by it, by this faith, this confidence of the things God has promised and the conviction that he will accomplish his will, by this men of old gained approval. But they were responding as this chapter unfolds to what? They were responding in these two basic expressions. Most of the time, they were responding to expression one, a clear promise of God that they believed that God would do. Verse, verse three, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which were visible. How is that faith? Well, we're responding to the scripture. We're responding to what God said in the scripture. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, uh, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and was not found because God took, took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, notice verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, not just that he exists, but that he is all that he says about himself. He is everything he claims to be. That he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God is by nature one who loves to respond to those who seek him. And so this is faith. Confidence in God's clear biblical promises and confidence that God has the capacity to do whatever I ask of him if he decides that it's best for me. Now, go back to our text because here in, in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us in chapter 11, Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God, in God's promises and in God's power. That's really what we're talking about. Faith in God's promises and his power. Those are the two expressions of faith. Now, the tense of the Greek verb translated have is present tense. We could translate it this way. Keep on having faith in God. This is an abiding, continuing faith. And it's faith in God's character and in God's word. So there is Jesus' exhortation. Verse 22, have faith. Keep on having faith in God. Now, Jesus applies that in verses 23 and 24. He begins, you'll notice, with his characteristic, truly I am saying to you. It's an expression he used often to introduce profound, solemn statements of truth. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Here's Matthew's uh, account. Matthew 21, 21. Jesus, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Now, don't jump to the wrong conclusion. 
There is no record that either Jesus or his apostles or every, anyone in human history has ever performed a miracle like this. Instead, Jesus was using figurative language from his time. When the rabbis of Jesus' time wanted to speak about something that was either extremely difficult or impossible, they would talk about moving mountains. And guess what? We still do the same thing at times today. At this point, it was a very clear figure of speech because Jesus and his disciples are on the Bethany side of the Mount of Olives. So this mountain here is probably a reference to the Mount of Olives. And from the east side of the Mount of Olives, you can see all the way down to the Dead Sea. Here is a, here's an aerial picture that shows you Bethany there in the foreground and the Dead Sea in the distance. And so Jesus is saying, essentially, if one of his disciples were to say to the Mount of Olives, be moved 10 miles and down some 4,000 feet in elevation and end up in the Dead Sea, verse 23 and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. The word doubt here speaks of being of a divided mind. It pictures a, an internal debate in the person in which they swing from one side of the argument to the other. It's like James 1, 5, and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Talking about wisdom in the middle of trials. You find yourself in the middle of a trial, you pray for wisdom. And he says, God, God's going to give you that wisdom generously without reproaching you for asking. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. Notice the figure of speech. In faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He goes on to say, he's not going to receive what he asks. Instead, you must believe that what you are speaking, literally the Greek text here says, is going to happen or is happening. Now you'll notice verse 23 is worded generically. Whoever, his heart, he, him. But in verse 24, Jesus applies this general principle directly to his apostles. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Now, verse 24 makes it clear that what Jesus is talking about in this context is having faith in God when it comes to prayer, when it comes to asking God for the things that you need. Matthew puts it this way, Matthew 21, 22, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, it doesn't say that God is going to answer your prayer immediately. The Greek verb can literally be translated, all things for which you continue to pray and continue to ask, is the verb tense here. This picture's ongoing prayer for these things. Therefore, because verse 23 is true, I am saying to you, my followers, verse 24, all things for which you pray, not only a prayer for the miraculous, like the Mount of Olives being cast into the Dead Sea, but for anything and everything you pray about and ask God for, believe that you have received it. Now, in, Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew grammar of the Old Testament, when a prophet wrote about a future event, 
that was absolutely certain because God had promised it, he wrote as if it had already happened. It's called the prophetic perfect. And in essence, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying when you pray, pray in the prophetic perfect. When you pray and ask God for what you need, have such confidence in God's clear biblical promises and in God's power that in your mind it's as if you already received it while you're praying for it. William Hendrickson, the great Presbyterian commentator, says no task in harmony with God's will is impossible to be performed by those who believe and do not doubt. This is God's consistent promise. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Luke 17, 6, the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, that's what the scriptures clearly teach, but here's the key, that's not all that the scriptures clearly teach. And that brings us to the limitations. You see, this passage and others like it are not some heavenly credit card with no spending limits. It doesn't fit the name and claim it prosperity gospel. There are limitations which our Lord places on this amazing golden key to prayer. In fact, there are three limitations in this passage. The first limitation is you must have true faith in God, in his faithfulness to keep his promises, or in his power to do what he hasn't promised to do if he should choose to do it. The two expressions of faith we talked about earlier. Jesus says, have faith in God. That's, that's a very basic requirement, and he, he repeats it in his application. You have to believe. But there's a second limitation in this passage that people don't often think about in terms of prayer, and that is have a spirit of forgiveness toward others. Have a spirit of forgiveness toward others. Look at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Whenever you're praying, whenever you're asking God to do anything on your behalf, notice Jesus specifically says, whenever you stand praying. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know in special times, either of ceremony or trouble, the Jews would pray either kneeling, like Solomon at the dedication of the temple, or prostrating themselves on the ground. But one normal position for praying among the Jews was, and if you visit Israel today, still is, standing. So when we pray, when you're standing praying, we must forgive. And notice what he says, forgive if you have anything against anyone, might be a clear-cut sin, might be you feel offended, maybe it's not a clear-cut sin, but there's something that another person has done that has offended you. Forgive. And notice he says, against anyone. Might be a fellow believer, brother or sister in Christ, might be a family member, might be an unbeliever, might be a co-worker, Anyone. And forgive, notice, for this purpose, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Notice, our forgiveness of others is a condition of God's forgiving us. Reminds me of the powerful parable in Matthew 18, after the 
the teaching about church discipline and the parable of the unforgiving slave. The point is, we must forgive. And if you're a true believer, you will forgive. The unforgiving cannot and will not be forgiven. The person who claims to be a Christian but continually as a habit of life refuses to forgive someone else has in fact never experienced God's true forgiveness. Now you'll notice verse 26, if you have the New American Standard, you'll notice it's in brackets and the the marginal notes say that it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. Of course that's true. It does appear in Matthew 6 in conjunction with the Lord's Prayer but probably not here. Nevertheless, obviously it's true because it's repeated elsewhere. And it, it, it fits. I understand why someone at some point, a scribe, inserted this in the, in the text. But the bigger question is why. Why does Jesus add the caveat in verse 25 here? Listen to Alan Cole, commentator. He writes, this is not arbitrary. I love this. Listen. We have no inherent right to be heard by God. All is his grace and undeserved favor. But unless we forgive others freely, it shows that we have no consciousness of the grace that we ourselves have received in need. And so it shows that we are expecting to be heard on our own merits, which cannot be. You see that? If we're not forgiving others, then somehow we think we deserve to be heard by God and that it's not all grace from him because we're not extending grace to others. We have a skewed view and version of grace in our minds. That's why this is so important. So there are clear limitations on this promise of God answering believing prayer. Have faith, obviously, is crucial. Have a spirit of forgiveness toward others. One other is in our text, and it's, it's obvious, but I'll just say it, and that is ask. You have to ask. This is made clear in Matthew 7, 7. You need to keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. In James 2, or excuse me, James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Uh, one of the sessions was about the, the sovereignty of God and how it intersects with prayer. I'm, I'm sure that that was a great benefit to you. My, my own way of thinking about that is... The God who decreed the ends, what will happen, also decreed the means by which they will happen. And so it may very well be that the God who decided to save that loved one of yours decided to do so in eternity past in answer to your prayer. That's how prayer and sovereignty intersect. God has decreed the ends, but the same God who decreed the ends has also decreed the means by which those ends will be brought. And it might be that your very prayer and answering your prayer is the means God determined to bring that thing to pass. So you have to ask. There are other limitations in other passages. Let me just give them to you because I think we need a fuller orb picture of what is expected of us. Number four, don't ask with wrong motives to consume it on pleasure. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. A lot of times someone says they're praying and believing prayer and they're shocked that God didn't answer when it's all about them. 
It's all about their lust and their desires and their ungodly cravings. Number five, ask in Jesus' name. John 14, 13 to 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does it mean to ask something in Jesus' name? It means not just tagging his name onto the end of your prayers or saying in Jesus' name on the end of your prayer. It means praying in harmony with all that Jesus has revealed concerning himself and praying, resting solely on his merits and not your own. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Number six, we also have to abide in Jesus and have his words abiding in us. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, that is, if you remain in me, if you continue to be my follower, my disciple, this isn't mystical. The word remain means to, I mean, the word abide means to remain, to stay. It's, if you stay connected to me, if you stay as my follower, and my words remain in you. In other words, you take what I say seriously and you're seeking to follow me and obey me. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Number seven, delight yourself in God. Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Number eight, ask according to God's revealed will. That is his word. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests of which, which we have asked from him. You say, how do I know if it's God's will? Is it, is it a timeless promise in his word or a statement of his will in his word? Then you can pray and ask that. I was, Matt and I were talking about this every Sunday morning. I will tomorrow morning as well. I get up early in my study and I'm looking through my notes and, and I'm praying for the fruit of God's word and the lives of my, my own life and the lives of the people I teach. And, and when I pray that, I know that I'm praying according to God's will because it is always God's will for the spirit to use the, the gifted men he's given the church and his word to benefit the growth of his people. That's what he said. So when I pray that, I don't ever hesitate to ask that and believe that it's going to happen because I know that's God's will. So if it's in God's revealed word as clearly an expression of his will, I can pray to that end. Now, we were also talking, that doesn't mean, for example, I know it's God's will to save people through the preaching of his word. That doesn't mean that he's promised to save someone tomorrow. I hope and pray that he will. But I'm not going to pray demanding that of God as though he somehow failed if he doesn't because he hasn't promised that tomorrow in our services someone's going to come to faith. But I still can pray believing that God may choose to do that and I know that often he does it through the preaching of his word. But I know every time I preach it's his intention to grow his people. Not everyone at the same level, not everyone responds in the same way, not, you know, but I know that's going to happen. You see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a, a, Praying in God's will is praying according to his word. And number nine, ask in submission to God's sovereign will. Of course, our Lord was the great example of this. His prayer in Gethsemane 
Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. There are those in the charismatic movement who say that if you say that, if you say anywhere in your prayer, if it's your will, you're basically admitting that you don't have faith. They need to read their Bibles because that's a slur on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He taught us to pray this way by his own example. Why? Because we are submitting ourselves to the sovereign will and purpose of God, which we can't know beforehand. You say, how do I know God's sovereign will? You don't until it happens. Then you can look back and go, that was God's sovereign will. But until it happens, you don't. And so we pray saying, Lord, I want you to do this, but I submit myself to your purpose. I pray all the time with people in my church who have cancer. Lord, you know our desire. Raise them up. Restore them to full health. But we don't know your will and purpose in their lives. We know you're good. We know you're wise. We know that whatever you choose, you'll give them grace, but we submit our wills to yours. What, whatever you will, let that be done. We know you're able. If you choose, the cancer's gone tomorrow. It's gone this moment as it was in the ministry of Christ as far as healing went. But we submit to your sovereign will. Alan Cole writes, we may not generalize and think that we can remove any mountains and wither any fig trees at all. Mountains will truly be removed, but at God's will, not ours. So, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you pray? That's the conference. Do you pray? Do you pray more than five minutes a day? Are you committed to seeking time with God alone? And that's not just about asking. We looked at it this morning. There's a whole lot of Focusing on God in prayer. The first three petitions are all about God. Praising him. Praying for his purpose to be accomplished. Then do you seek the daily needs of this life? Do you seek the forgiveness of sins? Do you seek holiness for yourself and others? Do you pray? And do you have enough confidence in God to believe that he truly answers prayer? I'm not asking for the theologically right answer. I'm asking you, do you believe that God has the power and capacity to act? To whatever extent we don't pray, we don't truly believe God can or will intervene. It goes back to what I said this morning. Often, it's about unbelief. We don't pray because we're not convinced God's going to do anything. If you pray... Do you really believe that God will keep his clear biblical promises to you? When you come to ask him, for example, let's say you find yourself in a, in a time of uh, financial leanness. Things are tough and you're, you're having trouble making ends meet. Do you believe God will meet your needs? Well, he's promised he would. He didn't promise he'd make you wealthy. He didn't promise we wouldn't go through lean times. Paul said, you know, I've gone many nights without food. So he's not promising we won't go through lean times, but over the span of a lifetime, God cares for his children. I'm the youngest of 10 children, and my father was a musician. Put the two together and the math doesn't work, okay? But I remember so many times his saying this. He would quote the promise in the psalm from David's pen, I was young and now I am old, 
And I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God provides for his own. Oh yeah, for his own purposes, he takes us through leanness to train us, to teach us to be dependent on him. But over the scope of a lifetime, he's not going to abandon us. He's going to provide for his children. Do you believe that? And whatever else it is that you're facing in life, it's, it's okay, first of all, to seize the clear promises of God to you. Like God, you've promised to provide. And again, I know that doesn't mean I'm going to be rich and have everything I want, nor does it mean I'm not going to go through times of hard, difficult times like Paul did, like, like our Lord even. But I know you're going to provide, and I, I'm, I'm asking you to meet my family's needs in your time and in your way. Do you believe that? Do you believe God can do that? Whatever it is, this is where we have to come. Do you believe that God will enable you to keep his commands? Do you believe that God will enable you to see a diminishing pattern of sin in your life and an increasing pattern of obedience? Do you believe that God will enable you to love your spouse as he commanded, keep you pure, not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, give you the wisdom you need in the midst of trials, cause the fruit of the Spirit to increase in your life? You believe those things? Then it's time to start praying and asking God to work those things in your life through his word and his spirit. And if you pray, do you really believe that God is able to do things that he hasn't promised to do for you, but things that you ask of him? Not that he will do it, not that you're demanding of God, not that you're, you're telling him what he has to do, but if you ask God for something that isn't clearly spelled out in his word, that's not about your lust, it's not about pleasure, it's about spiritual good, it's about the needs of this life that are real needs, do you believe that God has the power and capacity to do those things? Again, he hasn't promised them and you can't demand them, but do you believe that he can if he chooses based on what's best for you and for Christ's kingdom? You believe he can provide you a job? You believe he can provide you a spouse if you want to be married? Do you believe he can grant you favor with those in authority over you? Do you believe he can grant you the capacity to grow in your skills as you work hard at your job? Do you believe that he can heal a family member or friend? Do you believe that he can grant you wisdom as you parent your kids? Grant you wisdom and discipline to become a better student? Grant you the spiritual discipline to grow in the practice of godliness? Listen to Jesus' exhortation. Jesus answered, saying to them, keep on having faith in God. And that's in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, in a conference on prayer, we have to acknowledge to you that We have sinned against you, both in disobeying your clear commands about praying, being devoted to prayer, but Lord, in some ways even worse, we've sinned against your, your amazingly generous Father's heart in acting like you're stingy, in acting like you're not good and you're not generous, you're not even, you're not even as good as our earthly fathers. Father, forgive us putting such a slur on your character. Lord, we don't want to be 
those who abuse and misuse the text we've just studied together to make it uh, a blank check, a credit card with no spending limits. Lord, you've not given us that. At the same time, Father, forgive us for reacting the other way and for not having true confidence in your clear promises to us and asking you to do them on our behalf. And Father, for those things you haven't promised, forgive us for asking, but in our hearts, not really believing that you, you can or will do those things. Lord, this is such a delicate balance. I pray that you'd grant us your wisdom. But Lord, keep us who are conservative in our understanding of the scripture, who take your scripture seriously, who aren't into the false prosperity gospel. Lord, help us not to even go that direction in any way whatsoever. At the same time, Father, help us to embrace our Lord's teaching here and to keep on in prayer having true faith in you. I pray that we would leave this conference different men and women than when we came. May we be, by your grace, more committed to prayer because we believe that when the righteous cry, you hear. And that you are generous beyond our imagination. That you are wise and you only give us what would be best. And you choose at times not to give us for many different reasons. But that you are incredibly generous when we pray with the limitations that we've just examined in your word. Lord, thank you for the amazing privilege of prayer. Help us to follow our Lord's example and be men and women who are not only devoted to your word, but devoted to prayer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Romans 15, Paul describes the things written in former days as being for our instruction so that through our endurance, meaning our living in faith of those things written of old, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I trust today you've been encouraged with the scriptures, that you would have hope, that you would be re-inflamed in your commitment to pray and to be a people of faith expressed through prayer. I hope that's been accomplished in your heart today. That's been our prayer. So many things uh, that God has been at work at behind the scenes to answer prayer uh, heading into the conference, and uh, not the least of which is to bring these speakers and to bless them with uh, truth from the word and to help them be equipped to speak to us. That was a gift from our Lord in answer to prayer. So praise God for that, um, and thank God for faithful servants who could do that for us. Uh, Sunday's coming, and these guys know it, believe me. They all go home to their churches and hold fast to the word of life tomorrow with their bodies. So uh, pray for them as they go their way that they would be strengthened physically and mentally, emotionally, ready to re-engage with their church families tomorrow in the word. But thank you, men, for your ministry to us uh, over the last few hours, and Tom especially. Thank you for opening the scriptures to us and letting it speak plainly to our heart. It was so, so helpful. Um, 
just a reminder, all of this will be on our website, so if you want to go back and listen, uh, several of the notes will also be attached to those uh, audio sessions. So you can download a PDF and, and uh, track with those notes as well, so that we want to make that as available to you as possible. If you think of any way we can make the conference better for you in years to come or desires to continue to continue to do something like this for our church family and other local churches. If there's some way we could serve you better in coming years, we'd love to hear that. There's an email address in the uh, conference booklet. Go ahead and just drop us a note there or see us on the way out and let us know how we could do better next year to serve you all the more. As we close our conference, we want to give praise to God together and end with a prayer in song. So we're going to sing the Getty song, The Benediction. So please stand with me. Our musicians will come and lead us in singing the benediction. We'll be dismissed with that. Thank you so much for coming. May the peace of God our heavenly Father and the grace of Christ the risen Son and the fellowship of God the Spirit keep our hearts and might within his love and to him be Oh,